I've got to say, I am so impressed. Oh, it's so amazing. These groups of students. Uh, I just got off a call with a group of students um, on this Bible study workshop. Uh, this is for team training in East Anglian ministry. I'm helping with this group of students. Where do they find these amazing students? They understand the Bible so well. They're teaching them so well to understand the passage. And it shows, it really shows in the questions that they come up with. I just enjoy <laughs> listening to other people lead Bible studies. And they lead them so well and they prepare the questions. Uh, that's the task, by the way. They look at a passage. They're assigned these passages every week. And they're supposed to prepare Bible study questions. And, you know, they get them so right, better than most pastors. <laughs> uh, really, really difficult questions. I mean, we're looking at Colossians, you know, the first bit where it talks about the supremacy of Christ and everyone goes on tangents with these kind of things. But because they're grounding it as a Bible study, they're, they're trained to look out for the big idea, trained to look out for the application point and to write it out. Actually, I've got to say that's that's already such an amazing thing, that discipline of writing out your big idea. They just understand the passage so well, they're able to teach it so much better. You know, we're, we're, uh, one of the best classes I've had uh, so far all these years. Uh, very, very encouraging. Um, yeah, so I look forward to that. You know, every week, you know, just hearing uh, other people explain the Bible so well. You know, I, I'm almost nitpicking at <laughs> how to help them improve because um, they're good. They, they know how to lead Bible study. I think because they are leading Bible studies, uh, lots of them are already serving in their churches. I think just that environment of having to prepare to lead other people and discuss it with other people, that's better than any kind of course they can go on. So, you know, if you wanted to do kind of like apprenticeships, if you're looking for a place to do ministry, find a place that gives you opportunity to just put into practice what it means to preach, prepare Bible studies, you know, um, talk to people, tell people about Jesus, that kind of thing. Find a church that has um, more needs than supply. You know, don't find a church that already has too many people doing the stuff then you don't have anything to do. But um, at the same time, also you need people who will be able to mentor you but learning on the job my goodness there's nothing like being able to have context to ministry and that includes suffering that includes suffering that includes uh, feedback having people who are honest and open enough to tell you when maybe you're not as clear as you could be but that's really really great um, we are looking at Colossians the second half of Colossians chapter 1 you know how it begins in chapter 1 verse 15 he is the image of the invisible God and it builds up to he has supremacy over everything and it's the idea that how do you know that Jesus is king I know Jesus is head over everything and what difference does that make and it puts here you know in the context Jesus being supreme over all these powers in heaven that might even be in opposition to him, you know, it's almost like saying, you know, think of the president of the United States. Uh, I'm just thinking out. Please don't find, don't, <laughs> don't send me hate comments because I mentioned the president of the United States. But how do you measure then someone who is like the prime minister, the president in terms of his power? You can see, oh, look at the people around him. Look at his cabinet. Look at his wealth. Look at uh, the people who support him. How big his party is. But a different approach is to see all the countries they're opposing them. All the countries that are trying to have sanctions against them, they're trying to launch attacks against them. And if these countries are so powerful that they attack this leader in this country and they fail, 
In fact, he triumphs over them. That's the kind of supremacy that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is quite surprising, you know, for, you know, you don't expect it, that to read in the Bible. So when he says, for by him all things are, were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, this, this group of powers and rulers and authorities are those that are opposed to him. So again, think of <laughs> if you're a small country and you know you have all these powerful op opposing countries around you and constantly attacking you, but you triumph over them. If you're a small church and you have all these powers of opposition attacking you and Satan is attacking you, you know his minions are attacking your church because you belong to God, but you triumph over them because Christ has triumphed over them. That's the kind of assurance that God gives us that Jesus is Lord and you are his people. And therefore, if you remain in him, you will stand. You will stand by his grace. Verse 18, he is the head of the body of the church. He's supreme over all those powers. He is the head over our church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. That's incredible. I think, um, yeah, for them to get that, for them to be able to understand and make those connections, you know, with Jesus's authority, with his death and with the cross and our our church, you know, being able to stand and uh, with certainty and assurance of, of that. That's just incredible. Um, fantastic. I, I love this passage. I was saying that, you know, any new Christian, any Christian worth their salt should study this again and again, just to remind ourselves that context and the perspective, just who Jesus is. You ask the Christian to describe who Jesus is, you know, this is the passage to go to. He is supreme over everything through his death on the cross. He received that, you know, authenticating mark of his messiahship. You know, God raised him up to his right hand after he died on the cross, after he submitted himself to the cross and through his death, God exalted him where he now reigns at God's right hand. In verse 21, you know, that has implications for us, you know, because we were alienated from God. We were enemies in our minds because of our beha evil behavior. And all those powers, they were opposed to Christ. We were too, but God has reconciled us to him we deserve to be judged we deserve to be you know submit submissive to him in a fearful way but no 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 you know he has reconciled us god has reconciled us by christ's physical body through death to present us present you holy in his sight without blemish without free from accusation that's how god sees us now by the way you know not i saw that thing you did i saw that thought you had but we are holy, everything washed away without blemish. It's a description in the Old Testament of sacrifices that you bring before God. You know, sacrifices mean it dies. <laughs> but these sacrifices has to be holy, has to be perfect. But Christ is the sacrifice, hence that's why it's talking about his physical body. He has died our death and therefore we remain alive, but still holy and blemish free. From accusation. If there's a condition, verse 23, you continue in your faith, established, firmed, not moved from the hope. You see, just, you know, don't, it, it, it's like, you know, like a mom telling their kid behind, don't move, you know, and the kid moves, don't, don't move, don't, don't, don't. If you remain there 
remain in what remain in the gospel, remain in this hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard, meaning it's not something new. You already have this gospel. Don't move away. You already have this gospel. There's nothing new. You already have this gospel. Nothing that needs to be added to it that you heard that's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which Paul has, I, Paul, have become a servant. This kind of assurance of the power that comes to God's people, this assurance of our relationship with God, our status before God, simply because of this message of the gospel. That's not what I wanted to talk about. Actually, I wanted to do the daily Bible reading show, but just, you know, that effect it had on me just doing that Bible study. I, I love this passage, and I love that, you know, they you know, they led us in this passage in just such a fitting way. You know, I, I'll stop myself from going on further because the next bit of chapter one is just so good, you know, talking about Paul's authenticating mark of his suffering. It authenticates his ministry, and um, it just encourages us that when we look at that, we see Jesus. When you look at that, we see Jesus as suffering on our behalf and how amazing it is and not discouraging how amazing it is when we are able to bear those same marks, you know, before our people. Not everyone will go through this. It's not meant to be a requirement. You must suffer like Paul, but some will and some some are. Many are. Many Christian leaders are today. And sometimes we don't give them the kind of prominence well, they don't want them anyway. They're, they're humble, and it's not the reason why they suffer. But sometimes we give the prominence to other things. Leaders who are flashy, leaders who you know have are all that. When actually, leaders like Paul, leaders who suffered, leaders who humbly point to Jesus in the midst of their suffering, you know, show us just how wonderful it is to be served in this amazing way by them and by Christ. I need to start reading, otherwise I just go off on a tangent. Hello and welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show. We're going to pick up where we left off in Job chapter 32 and 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Let me begin by praying. Heavenly Father, thank you for your marks that you display in your servants. This, these marks of authenticity, of humility, of servant-heartedness, of suffering, of dependence upon you in the midst of great distress. It reminds us of how Jesus is able to empathize with us indeed in the times when we need him the most in our suffering in our cries for help lord we pray for our leaders who go through these things and indeed maybe even our own leaders that you sustain them you encourage them and you remind them what an encouragement they are to us uh, help us now as you read your word to understand it to apply it and to see the wonderful glories of christ in it we pray this in his name amen so Job chapter 32. I'm just going to read it from my screen. Job chapter 32. And this is Elihu. Ah, Elihu, the young guy in the bunch. All the others are old guys, but Elihu is the young upstart who tries to put in his two cents to Job and also his three friends. So Job chapter 32. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. Uh, he burned with anger also at Job's three friends. So not all of them. He's really hot-headed at three friends because they had found no answer. Although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu wanted to, had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he, 
and when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Three times, he seems to be burning and burning and burning with anger with Job because, you know, he's claiming to be blameless, even though he, you know, Elihu thinks that he is, um, you know, he's being punished just like his three friends. But he's upset with the three friends as well because he agrees with them, but they aren't able to answer Job adequately. They've been silenced by him. So he says, how can, it's so silly, it's so obvious. So Elihu, as the younger person, waits for them to finish, and then he chimes in with his two cents. Verse 6, And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, Let days speak, and many years teach wisdom. Uh, but it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention. And behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Beware, lest you say, we found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. They are dismayed. They answer no more. They have not a word to say. And shall I wait because they do not speak, because they stand there and answer no more? I also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent. It's like wine skins that wine skins that are ready to burst. You think of those Mentos, uh, <laughs> Mentos and Diet Coke. We drop in and go. You know, he's like that. It's like this thing that's ready to burst and explode with his anger and with his opinions. Verse twenty: I must speak that I may may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. So Elihu is kind of like the Cambridge graduate, you know, who has this unconventional wisdom. Why do I call it unconventional? Because it's not. The wisdom of his professors who've studied the subject uh, for years, their authorities on this, and so he has to learn under their feet. He's been listening to them. He's been hoping that they would give the answer to this problem. They haven't been able to do so. So Elihu says, "You know what? I think I have the answer because I'm not like you. So it's unconventional because I'm young and not old, because I have this burning." Passion inside of me that typifies so much of, well, my generation, all generations after me, whereby there's this democratization of wisdom, whereby because we feel passionate about it, we know we have to say something about it, whereby our volume is an indicator of our wisdom and our. Passion, that kind of thing, whereby, you know, it's not that we learned it in school. You know, it's not something that you know our previous generations kind of like toiled and picked up. But we have this new innovative way of dealing with this problem, and that's Elihu. He chimes in. He says, "I'm young in years." Verse six. He fully admits that he's not like them, 
and that's why he he waited till now to speak his mind. You know, therefore I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. But something changed. Something changed. You know, he、um, he says verse nine, nine. It is not the old who are wise, not the aged who understand what is right. It's almost as if I used to think that you guys were so smart. I don't think that way anymore, <laughs> because you aren't able to give the answer to this offensive man called Job. Therefore. It's my turn, verse ten. Therefore, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. And you know, every generation has its Elihu. You know, who feel as if, you know,、um, I want to throw my hat into the ring. Is that the expression? Why do you throw your hat into the ring? What happens? Does that mean that you know someone else gets your hat? Sorry, tangent. Anyway, <laughs> verse eleven. Behold, I waited. I waited. I listened to your wise sayings. You search out what you say. I gave your attention. I gave you your chance, but none of you refuted Job. None of you answered his words. Beware, lest you say we found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. So Job so far hasn't attacked. This other person. In fact, actually, until now, we didn't know where did this guy come from. <laughs> this, you know, we we knew of his three friends. Where did he come from? Job never spoke to him. He never spoke up. And so he's saying, you know, Job never directed any of his objections towards me. He never criticized me. And therefore, I'm going to answer him. But I'm not going to use your logic. I'm not going to just repeat the stuff that you said because in Elihu's mind, you guys are too old-fashioned. It doesn't work. You need to try something new. Verse fifteen: They are dismayed. They answer no more. They have not a word to say, describing his three friends. And shall I wait because they they do not speak, because they stand there and answer no more? Saying, you know, shall I just let the situation be and be embarrassed as them? You know, to be as ashamed as them? Said, no way. You know, I I no longer want to be associated with these professors. I used to look up to them, but now you know, look at them. They are nothing. It's my turn now to shine. I also, verse seventeen, will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinions, for I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent. You know, wine when it's kept inside wine skins, new wine especially, will have this chemical reaction with the skin. Sometimes made with the stomach of an animal with these skins, and it causes then gases to be expelled, and then it so expands, and therefore. You know,、um, like he describes himself like new wine skins ready to burst. I think Jesus uses that same analogy with you know new wine skins need new wine because it's still stretchy, and so it's able to stretch with all this bursting enthusiasm. Verse twenty: I must speak that I may find my relief. I must open my lips and answer. It's kind of like、uh, people who speak for the sake of say- speaking, or lots of people who are now coming up with podcasts, including like mine. Is like, oh, I need to say something. Therefore, I'm going to start a podcast. I need to to make my my opinions known. Therefore, I'm going to start this website, this YouTube channel. It's、um, this great desire to be heard, to be noticed, to distinguish your, yourself from all the voices that are out there, so that you sound like you, but also you make sure that they realize that they're not as good as you. They're not as wise as you. This new Aged、uh, wisdom that is unconventional, that is novel and innovative, that comes from me, that drives from passion. 
Verse 21, I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker should soon take me away. So he's his own person. He's not trying to, to side with any, either Job or with them. He's this third wheel, third opinion. So he, he's unique, in other words. He's trying to say, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to uh, gain favor from either of you, uh, Job or your friends, because he argues that otherwise, you know, God, this would take him away because he's showing impartiality, almost as if to say that God wants him to be this impartial voice. And that's the introduction to our friend uh, Elihu. Lots of passion. Sounds again like lots of Cambridge students I know. Uh, lots to commend about that. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, this is wonderful. If it actually spurs you from being inactive, you know, there's something um, very inactive about Job's three friends. They're silenced. And what they should do is therefore to repent and to consider, to consider maybe they're wrong. And therefore, that's the kind of action they should take. But it's a different action. This is kind of like, doing what the friends used to do but in a new way criticizing joe criticizing um punishment not hearing wisdom either from job or from his three friends but coming up and manufacturing our own wisdom and perhaps i don't know uh, that might be even more dangerous <laughs> that might be even more typical of our time whereby we're trying to rediscover something that is new that no one else has found before you know that's the basis of, of every scientific discovery we want to be new and novel so that we'd be recognized as unique and uh, this new authority very dangerous when someone tries to do that with god's word uh, ignoring all the traditions before i said all of them were idiots until i came along that kind of thing because they find it unsatisfactory, the situation they're, they're in. And, you know, it comes from maybe a good place, but maybe with a very youthful and brash approach. Uh, when you look at a situation, maybe in the world, maybe in your church, that is unsatisfying. You know, there's something wrong with this. Someone needs to be doing something. The people who are in charge aren't doing it. So I will deal with this. And you can applaud that. You know, someone's taking action. But you're dealing with it in a way that makes you out to be this new authority. And that's what Elihu claims to be, this unconventional wisdom of youth. Yeah, okay, that's enough on Job chapter 32. I think there'll be more chapters about him in tomorrow's um, and the next few chapters. Second Chronicles chapter 2. What do we have here? Paul, okay. For I made up my mind, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? As I wrote as I did, and I wrote as I did, so that when I came I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice, for I felt sure of all of you, uh, that my joy would be the joy of you all. Sorry, let me read that again. <laughs> Who should have made me rejoice for I sh felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. Okay, I guess I get that. Verse 4, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart 
and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So this is the reason why Paul、um, did not make this visit.、Um, he was he wanted to make two visits. He wanted to go to Macedonia and stop by Corinth, come back and stop by Corinth again. He didn't make either of those visits. And he says、um, it's because for their sake. It's not that he wanted to change plans yet he was busy, but he felt that if I did go there, oh wow, these guys.、Uh, I'm not sure if they can take it.、Uh, I'm not sure whether they、uh, would be able to handle、um, discipline and you know harsh discipline from Paul of all people. So he decided. He says not to make this visit, and he says if I were to cause you pain, you know, it's actually you. It would cause you not to be able to give me joy. Is that how he says it? Verse two: If I were to cause you pain, who is there to make me glad? But whom I've pained. That's such an interesting argument.、Um, <laughs> I guess he's saying is I think parents and children, you know, that's why、uh, parents. I imagine again my mom spanking me. Said, "Oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. This is hurting me more than it is hurting you." And you have cartoons that kind of like mimic that. You know, Simpsons <laughs> with Homer strangling his son Bart, or、uh, with Malcolm in the Middle. You know, the dad constantly, you know, ah, with the with the with the kids, and then and then. But actually, actually, it does pain parents more. Than children, because the children will forget, and the parents will remember for the rest of their lives. You know all the anguish that they were caused by their kids, and all the anguish that they were undergoing because they had to punish their kids. Yeah, so he decided not to go, and therefore he reveals his motivation for writing. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, with many tears, not to cause you pain. But to let you know, essentially, I love you. How much abundant love I have for you. Verse five. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. So he's talking about someone in this congregation that has kind of like caused trouble and caused pain, seemingly directed towards Paul. But he's saying, you know, they're they're pouring out this antagonism and this rebellion and these harsh words towards me. But actually, the people who suffer in the end of at the end of the day is the church, is you guys. Verse six: For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Oh, interesting. So Paul actually has.、Um, You know he's he has compassion on this particular individual, maybe who at one point of time was speaking out against Paul, criticizing Paul, and maybe even getting the church to turn their backs against Paul. But you know the church then sided with Paul, and now they've maybe turned against this person, maybe even expelled him from the church. And Paul is saying, you know, enough is enough. I think this guy has learned this lesson. Maybe for his sake, you know. Bring him back, you know. Forgive him.、Um, for such a one, he says, verse six, this punishment by the majority is enough. So this is a church level, congregation level punishment that they've meted out on this individual is enough. So verse seven, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Ah, 
For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for the sake, your sake, in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So Paul, you know, has this authority, you know, to punish, to have discipline. But Paul is saying, actually, you have this authority as a church. You have exercised this, and that's a good thing. But now, you know, realize that you also have this ability to reinstate this person you've punished. You've, um, what's the word for it? You've disciplined. Yeah, <laughs> this person you've disciplined. Please restore him. And he says, that's why verse 10, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. You, you have the same authority that I have together as this church because you have the authority from Christ. Hence verse 10 again, in the presence of Christ. And to not deal with punishment and to not deal with mercy is to be, verse 11, outwitted by Satan. So it's both, you know, knowing when is appropriate and not doing one and not the other. So punishment, important, but also to restore, you know, it's not just kick out, find out all the people we need to punish and then kick them out, but also knowing when, who we need to restore and show mercy and to recognize grace. And so they go hand in hand. And also the other way around, it's not just, oh, that's not a big deal and we we'll forgive them, but actually to know at times when we're meant to show tough love. And by this, it's, again, it's not some kind of physical punishment. It's just saying, you know, excommunication is saying, you know, I think it's time for you to you know, understand that you can't carry on as a Christian with this behavior and be part of this body of Christ. And to have that, therefore, be the teaching lesson that they realize, hey, you know, this is really serious. And Paul says, hand him over to Satan. That's in Second Corinthians, I think, chapter 5. Um, and therefore, you know, that exposure to the world to without the protection of the church, without the protection of the Spirit of God within the church, that has a teaching effect to bring that person back to the church. So that's the context, I think. Verse 12, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, okay, even this is an Acts, I think, even though a door is open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak of Christ. So I'm not quite sure of the context of verses 12 to 13. It sounds as if God opened the way for him to preach and to plant a church there in Troas, but he wasn't comfortable remaining there because he couldn't find his brother, Titus. And so he actually left that place and went to Macedonia. I think he talks about this later again in chapter 7. I think he talks about Titus again. Um, yeah, okay, chapter 7, verse 6. But God who comforts the Calcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. So he, Titus comes back in chapter 7. So we have to wait for that to see how, you know, that, that journey and that whole 
uh, segue we uh, resolves in chapter seven but you know paul then leaves this particular situation in order to reunite with titus but in verse 14 he says thanks be to god that christ leads us in this procession and it's called a triumphal procession it's what happens when a king has triumphed he's defeat, defeated the enemy and behind him is followed uh, this king leads all the prisoners so Paul is saying his ministry is like being led by Jesus Christ, but as his prisoner. <laughs> it's not led by Jesus Christ as the victor, you know, as, in a sense, yes, you know, as Jesus is the victor, is the king, but he is captured by Christ, and that's why he's serving him. It's not like he has a choice or anything, but it's a triumphal procession because Jesus himself has won the battle, and therefore he's almost just picking up the pieces. You know, he spreads this fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere and this fragrance he picks up on this analogy it smells like christ the aroma of christ to god and it smells differently to different people to the saved it sounds smells like life fragrance of life to life to those who are perishing it is a fragrance from death to death and it's interesting that one is being saved and when it's perishing that means that's why that's that's life to life and that's per and death to death that means as they hear more of christ as they hear more of the gospel in effect the the reality of that salvation the reality of that judgment the reality of that life the reality of that death becomes more and more evident you know i can't help but think of durian you know, every time i hear aroma of christ you know, you're, you're either a lover of durian or you're a hater. You know, either love it, and the more you love it, you love it even more. And the more you hate it, the more you just can't stand to be around it. And it's that kind of like polar reaction, this kind of like binary reaction that you have to Christ. Either you love him or you hate him. Either you repent before him or you reject him completely. And therefore, the more you hear of him, the more you hear of the gospel, the more you go in the opposite direction. And that, therefore, you know, reveals the, the nature of this gospel ministry. On one hand, yes, it's to be able to bring people from death to life. But on the other, it reveals who has life and who is perishing. For those who have life, it helps them to realize and to grow more in this life, to grow more in this um, salvation that God has given them from life to life. And that's why gospel ministry is important, not just to non-Christians, but all the more to Christians so that they grow in that salvation, in that mold, in that knowledge of Christ. But also in doing so, it reveals those who reject him and it hardens their hearts. It hardens their reaction. And that's a very sad thing, but a very real thing in ministry. You see it every day. Uh, but it's not dependent on the person who's preaching. It's not dependent on us. We are just being led by Christ. We're just preaching the gospel. And it's the gospel who does this work of saving and revealing and sanctifying and also hardening in people's uh, rebellion against God. And he says, for verse 17, the reason is we are not like many peddlers of God's word. And this is worrying. You know, it says many, <laughs> like so many, many people are doing this. They're selling. They're using God's word as a means for getting income, for gaining profit even. That there's something attractive to the gospel that people are willing to give you money for it. Or maybe even approval, maybe even support. But he says, as men of sincerity, you know, men who are transparent, you know, um, 
again, he is a prisoner of Christ. It's not that he has a he he has a stake in this uh, some kind of profit. He 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 has this ministry that's given to him by Christ. As men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God. We speak in Christ. You know, God is mentioned three times: God's word, God's commission, God's sight. So there's something objective about God. All things, all three things, God has given him: the gospel, this mandate, this commission, and God's. You know, all CCTV is constantly looking at Paul, constantly seeing how Paul is doing, evaluating his motives and his methods in preaching the gospel, and therefore, with this kind of Marks of ministry, he says. You know, I'm not like those who use this for profit, but I'm constantly, you know, aware that God has given me this ministry, this gospel, and given me this、um, burden, so that when He speaks of Christ, He's doing this,、um, well, sincerely、uh, from God.、Mm. Uh, interesting guy, Paul. You know, he <laughs> he's full of emotion. You know, he's he doesn't want to cause pain. To the Corinthian church, he doesn't want to cause pain to this sinner who is repented. He says, "Restore this guy." But in the end of the day, he understands why he has to undergo this pain. It's so that you know he is not not like those people who are selling God's word, these peddlers of God's word, that somehow you know there's a way of cheapening the gospel. By making it about ourselves, making it about you know how we can get profit from this. That's kind of scary, because how can you tell, you know, how can you tell whether someone is doing this、uh, from God or for themselves, whether they're doing this for profit or for the gospel? And I think、uh, Paul has answered that question. It's actually these marks of suffering. You know, he bears this pain、uh, for on behalf of the church. On behalf of people who used to offend him, on behalf of this brother Titus, he couldn't find him there. Paul is constantly weighing his heart against the people who are around him. He pouring his heart to serve them, and I think that guards us. I think from being able turning into one of these peddlers. You know, yes, you know, yeah.、Um, you know, I think when he mentions these peddlers, he's not saying, "Oh, I'm better than them," or "Oh, you better recognize that they're bad." And sometimes that's how we apply this. You know, all those people out there. But I think he is speaking about his own integrity. What's keeping me from turning into that? And, and you know, therefore, this is kind of an application point for people who aren't, you know, peddlers who are actually、uh, now, you know, you have your, that integrity, you have that ministry that's given to you by God. How will you keep on going in such a manner that you don't, you know, sell out? And it's constantly,、um, you know. Being in this position of、um, being led by Christ, you know, almost as his prisoner, you know, constantly preaching the gospel. I think, I think that's what he does. You know, verse fourteen, he's led, and therefore he's preaching, preaching, preaching. You know, he's preaching the gospel, and some people will be saved, some people will reject it, but at the end of the day, you're still preaching the gospel. It's not dependent on the weather. It's not dependent on the reception, but it's dependent on. You know, God giving us this mandate, this ministry, and us being faithful to that ministry and to that mandate. Okay, that was extra long. <laughs> okay,、um, but yeah, let me end by praying. Heavenly Father, thank you so much、uh, for this reminder to keep that integrity by not becoming a peddler of this gospel, not selling out, 
um, keep us from falling in this way, from cheapening this ministry that you've given us. Um, help us to renounce these shameful hidden ways, but to always keep on preaching the gospel uh, at our own cost. You know, even when the response is just death to death, uh, or even when it's life to life, to not cheapen it by asking for payment, but constantly to just preach it, preach it as we ought to as servants of God. At the end of the day, you know, we are unworthy servants before you, Jesus. We are only doing what we ought to. And woe to us if we do not preach the gospel. So please, please help us to keep doing this with integrity, with sincerity, with faithfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.